The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. I was reminded as we were worshiping him this morning that that's the main reason we're here. Can I get an amen to that? We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to be looking for what we can get out of being here. It's been a sin that we've been guilty of so many times. What do you have for me today? If you're hearing what I'm saying, say amen. It's a sin that we need to repent of. I'm going to see what's there for me today. And if what I expected is not there, then I don't like it. You see, I came expecting to have this happened, that happened, this song sung, that prayer prayed. This guy's, the Lord's putting this on my heart this morning. That's a sign of immaturity and it's a sign of sin. We need to repent. It's all about Him. It's all about him being glorified. It's all about you and me as the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, magnifying him and making him Lord in our lives. Amen? This morning, if you're our guest, we want to welcome you. And if, uh, if you wouldn't mind doing us a favor, there's a connect card in the pew in front of you. Would love to have your information to follow up with you to give you more information about what our mission here is at First Baptist Conyers. Our mission is to win one to Jesus, disciple that one in Jesus, and send them for Jesus. That's the mission that God has given us. And if you're looking for a church to be a part of that has that sole focus and mission, we, we want you to join with us in that mission. Um, you can fill that out. There's one online also that you can fill out. We'd love to have that information. This morning, I, I want to ask some of you to help out on Thursday morning, October the 28th. That's a couple of weeks from now. Uh, that is our day nationally. We recognize those that are first responders. And I don't know in my lifetime that I've ever seen where it's more difficult to serve the community uh, as a first responder. This last Wednesday, I had the opportunity to do a devotion with the Sheriff's Department at 7 a.m. on a Zoom. And to my surprise, there were some 37 local Sheriff's Department officers online on that. And I thought, man, I'm glad to know that we have followers of Christ that will join in a devotion on Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m., to be exhorted, to be encouraged in the Word of God. And so 
it was just put on my heart. You know, we as a church body, we want to show appreciation to those that are first responders in our community, our sheriff's department, our city police officers, our EMT responders, our firefighters, just to show an appreciation. Have you recognized that there are a lot of people wanting to criticize them there during this day? And we want to appreciate them and their families. So from 7 to 9 a.m., we're going to have the portico out here where they can come through. They can get out of their vehicles or just simply come by, uh, get a Chick-fil-A biscuit and a cup of coffee. And we want to pray for them as they come through that portico and that, their, that area. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, I would ask you to fill out that Connect card and say, I can be there Thursday morning and come and serve. Uh, your, your minimal service is going to be just a hand a biscuit, show genuine love and appreciation, and pray for that particular officer or firefighter that comes through. And we trust that God will use that to exhort some, to encourage some, and some, it, we believe, that are probably being drawn by the Father to Jesus and God might use that to bring them to faith in Christ. So be there with us next, uh, excuse me, the 28th, that's two weeks from now. But this morning we have a special service that was kind of planned at the, at the last minute in some respects, although we had planned it three years ago and different things came in to, to affect that. But we have the opportunity this morning uh, to ordain a dear friend of mine, and many of you know Terry Burkeen with Club 180 in Kentucky. Many of you have gone to mission trips there to serve alongside of him and his wife, Angie, there. And so we are honored this morning to be a local church body that can affirm what we believe God is calling you in your life, Terry, uh, and Angie, you along with him in that. Uh, Glenn Dyer probably knows him longer than any of us. I think Glenn spent quite a bit of time in his early life as a believer, discipling him and walking along with him. And let me just say, this is the fruit of discipleship. Uh, this is why we are engaged in making disciples that will make other disciples. And it's a joy to, to see that this morning. But I wanted to, uh, to preach out of 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. So if you'll turn in your Bibles... 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first six verses of this chapter as Peter is writing to a local church, and I've entitled the message, Shepherd the Flock of God. Uh, there are a number of passages that I could have chosen to preach out of this morning, and this passage doesn't encompass all that goes along with that call of God to an elder or the term that we use in our modern vernacular day is a pastor. The terms are interchangeable in Scripture. Presbytery is, is what we might call it. But there are certain specific charges as well as qualifications uh, to one who would respond to God's call to step in that arena of being an elder or a pastor. It doesn't mean that they're any more special than any others. Good night. I look at me and I look at Glenn and other guys that the Lord has called and I think, Lord, do you have any idea what you are doing? But I'm reminded of the verse that says, God uses the foolish to confound the wise. And to underline that it's not a man's choice or decision uh, to become an elder or a pastor, but it is responding to a call of God in their life where God is the one that does the calling and it's not of the will of man. And I would underline this and say, if it is not doing the calling of God, then you do not want to do it. Amen? 
And so in this passage, let me read the verses, and I'm going to back up and, and dissect it a little bit. Peter writes, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, so I exhort the elders, you might insert the word pastors there, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders." Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the context of this writing as Peter shifts gears and speaks to the pastors and the elders of the church is very important because Peter's writing to a church that was under severe persecution at the time. A lot of suffering was going on in the body. Peter, we believe, was probably the local pastor there in Jerusalem as he was an apostle of Christ. He, he walked with Christ. He was one of the apostles, and God shifted him in that in a role of a local church pastor, at least over the local churches there in Jerusalem. And we know that persecution broke out there in that early church and that many of the Jews were scattered who had placed their faith in Christ. They were scattered throughout the land and they were facing persecution unlike we've ever seen in, in our nation. If you've been outside of this nation, though, you'll recognize around the world that there's persecution in the body of Christ and the church unlike we can really never imagine here in America. And a side note, I think sometimes that may be why we don't see the great moves of God in the church in America that we see in other places, in Africa and in India and in communist nations around the world, where it seems as though you can cut the presence of the Holy Spirit with a knife. And I believe that part of that is that the persecution that they face in those countries, the only thing that they have to rely on is God himself. So Peter's writing this letter, and there's several things that he exhorts them to in the letter. He reminds them that, that they're to stand strong in the faith. In the midst of persecution, stand strong. Stand strong for the faith. The once in all faith, as Jude declared. To look to Jesus as the example, and he uses Jesus in the fashion in this letter of, of seeing Jesus, how he lived his life, and how he suffered as a result of him being obedient to the Father's will, to remember Jesus' example. To remember their inheritance that they have in Christ, that their inheritance is not what they will receive on this side. 
but there's an inheritance that they have in Christ while they enjoy those on this side of the blessings that we receive as being in Christ. There is an inheritance. There's a future time, that eternal time that we'll really recognize and see it. And then he exhorts them to have a hope in Jesus' return. I find it remarkable that in the early church, they, like we today, some 2,000 years ago, understood and know that Jesus can return at any moment. And just as though we expect that Jesus is going to return in our time when we see how the times are, in the first century, they believed that Jesus could return at any moment. Now, I do not know when he's going to return. Amen? One or two of you may claim to know, but can I remind you that the Bible says that Jesus is not really aware of the day that the Father is going to say to him, Jesus, go and get your bride. You see, the fact is he could return at any day. There's some main points that he uh, brings out in this. And, And one of the main points is how believers are to conduct themselves or to respond in the midst of suffering. It's been a condition from the dawn of the fall in the garden that mankind has suffered from that very day as a result of sin that entered the world. And so don't be surprised, as James says, when you face fiery trials. They're just a part of life. They're a part of living in a sin-fallen world. But he exhorts them to trust and cling on to Christ in the midst of that. And he reminds them that they are still to remain obedient in the midst of whatever circumstance they find themselves in. Jesus said that if you love me, you will do what? Obey my commands. And so he's writing to this body, and he tells them to remain steadfast. And and then he shifts gears and begins to write to those who were elders or pastors in this local church. We know that everywhere that Paul went on his missionary journeys, the letters to the church, he, he appointed elders or he appointed pastors in that. It's, it's, a, it's an office, if you will, that God has set apart for certain men that we would follow and walk in those. And I will remind us again that it's God that does the choosing. We don't choose to do it. We simply respond to what God is calling in our lives. And so he uses the word here, I exhort the elders. This is a strong word that Peter used. In other words, you might say, I want to use as strong a persuasion as I can on you. And you hear the urgency in this that Peter is writing to these pastors, to these elders. I'm going to strongly persuade my fellow elders. Here Peter puts himself in the same company of these elders as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter uses this background that he has, if you will, that that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. 
We know that Peter was with Jesus for his three-year earthly ministry. And as we read the gospel accounts where there were those who, who took, up stone, took up stones to try to stone Jesus, it, Jesus was a hunted man, if you will, from the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. And as a result of that, there was suffering and anguish in the life of Christ. And then, of course, Peter being a witness, maybe not an, a, a, at the point, but we have indication in Scripture that after Jesus had been crucified, Peter perhaps had witnessed him there on the cross. But Peter was well aware of the sufferings of Christ. And I, I thought as I read this that there's a link here where Peter writes to elders and he uses the phrase as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, there's a, there's a witness of the suffering of Christ, but we know that there's a glory to be revealed later. Peter had a glimpse of that glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when he witnessed Christ at that point. But that time, at that time, was not to be shown where he would be glorified. But we will see he's calling us to look forward to that day when Christ will return and all of his glory will be revealed in that day. And so Peter exhorts them. And, and I kind of ask the question, why did Jesus mention Christ's sufferings in this stanza as he's writing to those who are elders and who are pastors? And I asked the question, did Peter's witness of Jesus' sufferings have an impact in his life as being one called by God to be an under-shepherd in the body of Christ? And I think there is. I think there's a correlation there that Peter recognized, and he maybe have recalled Jesus' words, if I paraphrase, where he said, listen, don't, don't expect anything different. You see the Son of Man suffering, and, and you're going to suffer as a result as well for the sake of the gospel. Now, I've known some elders, myself included, have suffered because of our own stupidity. <laughs> Amen? But there's a call to that. Let me just briefly share a few things about this suffering, I think, that Peter may have had in mind. You see, there's always a purpose in suffering. Underline that in your minds. There's always a purpose. There's always something that God is going to work in the midst of our suffering. Oftentimes, I have learned that in the midst of suffering, that the work that God is doing most is what he's doing in me, that the only way he could have ever done that was to allow me to be in that point or that place of suffering, whether it be physical suffering, whether it be economic suffering, whether it be emotional suffering, whether it's being hurt, all of those kinds of things. The first question we need to ask our mind is, God, what are you teaching me? What do you want to teach me? What can I learn of your grace and your love and share in your sufferings through this that I might be enduring. I'm reminded of what the writer in Hebrews wrote when he spoke of Jesus, and he said, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, here's not an indication that Jesus was disobedient and he had to learn obedience because we know that there was no sin in him. 
but as fully man yet fully God, in, in being obedient to the will of the Father, Jesus learned. He knew suffering, therefore he could relate and understand in our sufferings that we face as well. He grew in that fact. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, a very favorite verse of mine. Paul writes to the Romans there, and he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Everybody that's got a suffering they're going through right now, will you just say, hallelujah? <laughs> we have Pentecostal on us in a moment. We typically don't. But Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing. In other words, there's a so that. There's a reason for the sufferings. He goes on to say, knowing that suffering produces endurance. You see, it's not a way, it's not a matter of how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. And so he said, through our suffering, we learn endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul writes to Timothy in one of his pastoral letters to him, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says to Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, in the modern church in America, we don't want to hear about suffering. But here I find it remarkable that, that Paul does not say avoid suffering. He doesn't say run from it. He doesn't try to say try to find another way around it. But he says in the midst of that, because of the gospel, share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. I think in the modern church, we don't like to change the time that we meet on Sunday morning, let alone share in the suffering of Christ for the cause of the gospel. He writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Notice the difference between these two passages. Paul, in the passage in Timothy, he speaks of sharing and suffering for the gospel, for the power of God. And then in Colossians, he speaks of, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You see, that's the call that's the demand, if you will, that God places in that calling as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an elder, that there will be sufferings for the sake of the body. And we're reminded that the body of Christ does not belong to any pastor. The body of Christ belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I decided years ago, and this is not to self-gloat, but I decided years ago, my name will never be on a church sign in front of the church because it's not Jamo's church, amen? amen. 
And by the way, can I say this to others? Sometimes we have the idea that we serve on this committee or that committee or in this function. It ain't yours either. I don't want to touch the body of Christ. We're called to love the body of Christ. Now, he goes into verse 2 and 3 of telling these elders how they're to exercise oversight within that body. First of all, he calls them to shepherd, and that brings to mind that, that image of what we spoke several weeks ago in Psalm 23 of the shepherd and the sheep. And so he he calls the shepherd and he tells them to feed the sheep. The number one priority and call in a pastor elder's life, Terry and other pastors here, is to teach the Word of God and guard the integrity of the Scriptures. That's why we are called to study the Scriptures. It pains me sometimes when I see the condition of the body of Christ and the pastorate in America where we tend to take a headline and we say, here are seven little things that you can do in your life to live a better life in response to what's going on in culture. Listen, that does not have any effect because the Spirit of God is not in that. The Spirit of God is in the Word of God. Spirit of God is not in any of my creative ideas or your creative ideas or modern psychology, or any of those kinds of things. But he says that we're, we're as, as shepherds, as shepherds of the flock. We're to nourish, to lead, to guide, to protect, to correct, and love. I wasn't a shepherd, but we raised some sheep when I was a kid. And I recognized that with those sheep that we had, there were different personalities within that small flock of sheep that we had. Just as there are different personalities within the body of Christ. I had a, a little young you. As a matter of fact, she was the first you that I ever had that, that birthed me a lamb. She was a sweetheart. Just loving, but also had a ram. And the reason we got the ram was because it was Newton County Rams. But can I tell you, that was one of the most honorary, mean sheep that I ever had. I couldn't go in the sheep pen. If he was on the other side, he would see me and he would begin to come and he would raise up on his back legs and his horns turned twice. He was, he was a strong sheep. And if I didn't get out of there fast enough, he was going to knock me on my blessed assurance. And I had a stick. I still have the stick in my office. It's a curly stick. And I would wail on that ram with that stick. Well, you know, I found out the same thing in the body of Christ. Now, I know none of y'all are rams, right? None of you are honorary rams. Sometimes we act like an honorary ram. Now, he was still a part of the sheepfold. He was still one of our sheep. I'll stop right there. But see, the the shepherd spends long hours with the flock, and and that's the image that he gives to us as 
elders, as pastors, as shepherds. Been, there's time there spent. There's investment. Oftentimes, a shepherd foregoes their own comfort or their own preferences in order for the sake of the sheep. The shepherd also knows his sheep's characteristics. You know, not a one of, not, not, not two of you are identical. Right? And I'm the weirdest of all of us. Amen. But we make up the flock. The, the good shepherd goes after the wandering sheep. Now I've learned there are wandering sheep and there are rebellious sheep. Now this may sound harsh, but I've learned through the years that I'm not going to chase after the rebellious sheep. Because sometimes that sheep has to get outside the fold to realize how good they had it when they were in the fold. Terry, you will never live up to the expectation of the flock. Nor are you supposed to. It's okay, right? I'm sure in this room there are some that I've disappointed. I understand that, not intentionally. But God does not call the pastor, the shepherd, or the elder to be aware of every little situation and at every beck and call of every member of the See, sometimes we need to say, listen, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to get in the Word of God yourself, and it's time for you to be a self-feeder. And then all these things will change. You see, that's what the job is. God has called them in pastors, teachers, preachers, possible to do what? Equip the body for the work of the ministry. In our modern culture, we hire the professionals to do sometimes what we don't want to do. I'll have to say overall, though, I've said this before, Sandy and I, this is now my fourth church that I've pastored in. We've never felt as loved and appreciated as we do by this body of believers. And I'm grateful for that. It means there were the other shepherds that came along before me that did a good job. Notice he says here that it's the flock of God. I mentioned this earlier, but, but I think Peter puts us in here specifically. It's the flock of God. It doesn't belong to you or I as the under-shepherd. We're called to be responsible to that flock that belongs to God. Exercising, he says. Exercising oversight. That word exercising carries the idea that it is, a, it is an activity where we exercise oversight. You see, when coupled with oversight, it has the idea of spying out actively, watching over, but not lording over the body. It's an active role in the life and care of the body. I, I, wish, I wish I could change this, but I, I, Terry, every waking hour, and I, this almost sounds self-serving. I don't mean it to be. I, I'm, I'm just wanting to share what, what Peter writes here. It, 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 there, it's never off the shepherd's mind. The body is always on the shepherd's mind. 
It's not physical time to respond to every one of those things, but, but the body is always there on the mind and in communion and in prayer with God. There's that person that pops in your mind and there's that family that pops in your mind and you know and all the stuff that they're going through and that broken home that pops in your mind and you want to do something, but you recognize you can't. It's only the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God that can bring about change. And Paul speaks of that, how he suffered in that, and the daily concerns that were on his mind with the body. Let's, let's look on here. He says, there, there's, there's two little conjunctions that I want you to see. There's, there's a not, but there's a but. There's a contrast that, that he makes here in this, and he, and he calls them to exercise overthought, not under compulsion, but willingly. It brings out the question of what's the reason that you've desired to be an elder or a pastor? Not under compulsion. We all understand and know what compulsion is. That there seems to be, well, I really reluctantly, I can't you find anybody else, you know? You ever been asked to teach a Sunday school class just because you couldn't find anybody else? <laughs> well, I'll do it. Listen, I learned a long time ago. That when the Holy Spirit's calling someone to do something, there is absolutely nothing anybody can do to keep them from doing it. But if the Holy Spirit is not there, you will spend a lot of time trying to keep them doing what they're doing. Let's let God be God and God raise up those to serve in His areas. Not under compulsion, but willingly. You see, the 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 response to the elder pastor role is, is not for a vocation. It's not that we go to our career counselor and they say, here are the jobs that are available. What do you want to train to be? But in that role of elder pastor, there's a call of God. It's not a vocation we choose. It's a call of God that we respond to. Not out of constraint, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. I've met some in my life that, that you know that their main motivation and ambition is pay. They jump to the next biggest church they can find because typically it's going to mean more money. I've known some who have received the title of pastor or nation, and all of a sudden they think they are God's gift to all creation. Some of you may have sat under some of those. It was a time in this community when there was a lot of prestige that went along with being the senior pastor of one of the three main churches in this county. We don't do it for recognition. But as God would have you. You see, the elder is called by God, not by man. And that means we are accountable to God, not accountable to man. Now, that doesn't mean that we shuck accountability. Accountability is one of the most important things in my life as a pastor. I have accountability in every area of my life. And it's necessary. You know why? Because I am still driven by the flesh. And there needs to be accountability there 
in our lives, Terry and other pastors here, as God would have you. Now, there's a motive, he says here, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You see, false teachers, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I think, is the context that false teachers are always motivated by money and power. Those are two of the three things my mentor told me for years. Y'all want to know what the three things were he told me to watch? Money, women, and pride. That's why accountability is so necessary. But here he says, not out of selfish gain, to fleece the flock for whatever they can for their own purposes. There's not only material gain, but there's popularity gain, there's sexual favor that sometimes one might be drawn to in certain circles, societal status, and all of these, they're wrong motives. But it has to be a call of God. Let's look at the motive. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The example that he lays out in this is the example of the chief shepherd. You see, in our corporate world, we we have this structure. How many of you can picture in your mind the organizational chart where you might work? Got it in your mind? Who's usually at the top of that pyramid and that organizational chart? The CEO. And Terry, remind you, we're not called to be CEOs. We're called to be shepherds. Amen? Now, sometimes you might be expected to be. You might be expected to be a professional in finances. You might be expected to be a professional in law. You might be expected to be a professional in this and that and the other. But what God's called us, and by the way, we're not professionals, what God's called us to do is to shepherd the flock. In the church, in the body of Christ, the organizational chart is not that. In the body of Christ, the organizational chart is this. Jesus says, I I came not to be, you see how well we know our Bibles, I came not to be, but I came so that I might, and the ultimate example in that was he laid down his body for our sake. That's, That's the church, that's the body of Christ. Leadership in the body of Christ is servanthood. It's not domineering. And, and we've, we've probably all seen those who are autocratic in their leadership and all that kind of stuff. And I've learned that some of those guys can build huge churches. But unfortunately, I see the result of that of a recent church in Seattle called Mars Hill where there was ultimate authority given. They missed that that the pyramid's upside down rather than in that corporate structure. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Let me wrap this up, verses 4 to 6. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. The Bible speaks of those crowns that, that we'll get when we get to glory. And we understand that those crowns are they're, they're, they're not for us. They'll, they'll be there to worship him, to lay at his feet. But there's a promise here. There, there seems to be in Scripture that there's a crown given to the shepherd, the elder, <laughs> if we're faithful to it with the right motivation. We'll, we'll, we'll get that. We'll, we'll lay that at his feet. And then he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, there are a couple of ways we can take this, and theologians are, are, are mixed on their responses. Does he mean younger as in generally those who are not the shepherd, the elder, or is he speaking to the younger? I kind of lean towards he's speaking to those that are younger because when I, I remember when I was younger, I was a little bit more rebellious than I am at an older age. Please don't take offense to that, our college age guys. You're right, yeah. yeah. Where's your mom? I want her to hear you say that. She, she's not here. <laughs> Um, but he's writing and, and, he, and he exhorts them. But I would say the application is to all of us in the body of Christ. Interpretation is, I think he's literally speaking to those that are, that are younger. And elder is not a reference to those that are older. Elder is a re- reference to the word that's used there is, is the presbyter, presbyter. Dr. Mapes, am I correct in that Greek right? Close enough. But, but he tells us in the body of Christ that we're to be subject, to, to be in obedience to. We're an independent people in America, aren't we? We don't want to submit to anybody. We want to do our own thing. We want to make our own course. Not so in the body of Christ. God's placed order there. Now, it stands to reason that if the pastor shepherd gets off on some theological tandem or is using some abusive means in leadership, that's different. But, but here he's speaking to generally, he says, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility, clothe yourselves in humility. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I really looked at this and studied this through, and I think there's a reason that he gets this. I think he's telling the younger, because when I was younger, I thought I knew how to do everything. Dad doesn't do that right. I got a better way. And I find in the church and that sometimes the younger say, well, you know, we're, we, we, don't, we don't, 
we've got a better way to do it. And can I say, let me exhort youngers, that's born out of rebellion, and God doesn't bless that. As I've gotten older, I realize the things that I thought that I knew how they ought to be done or what should be done. Well, let me just say this. I was foolish when I was younger. I'm not as foolish now, but I was really foolish then. He says, in due time, in other words, wait. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may lift you up. Terry, these are just a few comments by Peter. I wanted to do this on a Sunday morning because I feel it's important as a body of Christ that we understand what that call is. Terry, I want to ask you to come share with the congregation briefly your testimony and Angie, if you'll come with him, I'm going to get you a mic from over here. And then we're going to have a time in our closing time if Zach would go ahead and come and just play quietly during that closing time, Zach or Jenny. And then I'm going to call all those that are, that are elders, that are pastors, that are shepherds, them and their wives to come with Terry and Angie before the altar here. Glenn is going to give the charge to them, and we're going to pray. I, I believe this is a holy moment. I really do. And so, Terry. Good morning. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Um, this is a an extremely special day for me, personally. It's probably a 20-year journey to get to this point, uh, to be quite honest with you, um, where I feel like this is that moment where um, God is, is, is putting that, his stamp of approval on my life for where we go from here on. But just to kind of bring you to this moment, I was saved and baptized when I was 12 years old back in 1978. And from that moment, I can remember um, after my baptism feeling and hearing the voice of God speaking into my life that I'm setting you apart. And I had no idea what to do with that. So I went to my pastor at that time uh, at Bluegrass Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and shared with him what God was doing and what God was speaking to me. And he, you know... I received a pat on the back, and uh, that's great, young man, and, and uh, bless you. So I shared that with my youth pastor at the time, and kind of the same thing. I received that pat on the back, and God bless you, son. Uh, good job. Follow that call. But I received nothing in the way of discipleship. 
my entire life in that church and I grew up in that church. There was Sunday school. We were taught the Bible. But we were not discipled. There's a big difference between Sunday school and teaching the Bible and discipleship. A big difference. Discipleship comes when you as an individual in the body of Christ decide that you are all in. You personally. Whether you become a Timothy, that is someone who is being discipled, or whether you are a Paul, someone who is discipling others. You're all in. It's not just about being someone who can be called to come and teach a Sunday school class because so-and-so was not there. Can you do that this weekend? Well, yeah, I guess. Okay. No. Discipleship is being all in. Let me share with you how that works. This man, Pastor Glenn Dyer, when I was at a moment in my life when it was critical to make a decision about who I was going to be going forward, I went to him and I said, Glenn, if this is all the church is, I'm done. I had been a Sunday school teacher. I had been ordained as a deacon. I had been a a Sunday school teacher to children. I had been a Sunday school teacher to adults. I had served on the committees in the church. And none of that was fulfilling my life. I'd watched the church grow. I had watched the church split. I had watched the church do all kinds of things. But nothing was working. And I was done. And I said, before I leave, I'm just going to talk to our new pastor and ask him some, some, some kind of advice. And he simply said to me these words, Terry, why don't you walk with me for a while? And he and I began to meet together weekly. We would meet at the church. We would meet at a coffee shop. And he began to disciple me. He began to truly disciple me. And I began to see the scales began to come off. And I began to see the word of God in a fresh new way that I had never experienced before in my life. Moving forward a few years... I I went to uh, the Philippines. I had, with a a good friend of mine who is a missionary in China now, we we took a group from our church in White House, Tennessee, over to the Philippines, and he and I were sitting together uh, like 4 a.m. in the morning before anyone else got up on the side of this mountain where we were building. We were up in the mountains of Mindanao in a little city called Butuan. And we were building a church for the pastor in that village on the side of this mountain. And so Peter and I would go and sit on the side of that mountain, dangling our feet off of it. And I remember 
a moment where that same still small voice that spoke to me when I was 12 years old spoke to me in that moment and said, Terry, I am setting you apart. And from that moment, everything in my life changed. God set us on a path that would lead us, our family, Angie and I's family, to the rural mountains of Appalachia in eastern Kentucky, where we are today, where we've been for the last 16 years doing Club 180 ministry. That ministry is to the kids in rural Appalachia. And this is the passage of scripture that God gave me on the side of a mountain as I was praying about what were we going to do here, God. And God said this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prison prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. Not Terry be glorified. Not Club 180 Ministry be glorified. But God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, that these kids that we've been able and privileged to love on for the last 16 years would be His planting so that they will bring Him glory. Amen? That has been a beautiful picture and story in our life for the last 16 years. And it has nothing to do with me. But it has everything to do with the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way I've learned to be discipled and to be a disciple maker. It's just by loving on children, loving on their families, and serving our Lord in that capacity. And so God has brought us to this moment. So this 20-year journey is a brand new beginning for me. I don't know where God will take us from here, but we'll just keep serving him in the capacity that he's taught us through his Holy Spirit and continue to love on the kids and go wherever he sends us. In Jesus' name, thank you. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.